Go ahead and turn in your Bible, if you would, to Leviticus chapter 24. Leviticus 24. We're continuing our series to live in the presence of God. And this morning's message very specifically is going to hit on that series title that we've been using. The last two weeks, we were in Leviticus 23. And we were looking at Israel's yearly calendar. So the feasts that point to Jesus. Next week, we'll be in Leviticus 25, and we'll be seeing Israel's 50-year cycle in the year of Jubilee. But today, it's Israel's weekly rhythm of Sabbath. And so we're going to be calling this Flourishing in God's Presence. And the main idea of what we're going to be seeing today is this, that God's people flourish when they regularly gather, rest, and worship in his presence. Let me say that again. God's people flourish when they regularly gather, rest, and worship in his presence. If you're there in Leviticus chapter 24, we're going to begin with the first nine verses, looking at the lampstand and the bread of the presence. Leviticus 24, starting in verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the people of Israel to bring you pure oil from beaten olives for the lamp that a light may be kept burning regularly outside the veil of the testimony in the tent of meeting. Aaron shall arrange it from evening to morning before the Lord regularly. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. He shall arrange the lamps on the lampstand of pure gold before the Lord regularly. You shall take fine flour and bake 12 loaves from it. Two-tenths of an ephah shall be in each loaf. And you shall set them in two piles, six in a pile, on the table of pure gold before the Lord. And you shall put pure frankincense on each pile, that it may go with the bread as a memorial portion, as a food offering to the Lord. Every Sabbath day, Aaron shall arrange it before the Lord regularly. It is from the people of Israel as a covenant forever. And it shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in a holy place, since it is for him a most holy portion out of the Lord's food offerings, a perpetual due. All right. So let me give you, before we dig into the specifics of this passage, some other texts that kind of form the background to what we need to understand about this. And the first one is from Numbers chapter 8. This is verses 1 through 3. Now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and say to him, When you set up the lamps, the seven lamps shall give light in front of the lampstand. And Aaron did so. He set up its lamps in front of the lampstand as the Lord commanded Moses. So the thing to notice there in those verses is this. When the lamps are set up, they're not what we typically picture. We typically picture these lampstands, like the candlesticks, with the light pointing straight up. That's not what the directions say. The directions say that the light is to give light in front of the table. So they're pointing forward as they're set up here in the holy place in the tabernacle. So it helps us to think about the tabernacle arrangement. Here's the tabernacle. And so you can see, you know, the courtyard and then the the tabernacle itself. We're going to zoom in on that. 
And so you have on the far left-hand side there, you have the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant is, and then there's a veil that is in front of that. You're seeing a cutaway so that you can see both parts of it. But then this outer section here inside the tabernacle is the holy place. And you can see right here is the candelabra, this lampstand, but this is kind of pictured typically with them pointing straight up. But like we've just read, the light is designed to, to be pointing forward from that table. And then if you look across from it, you see the bread, just like we read about, the bread of the presence, those 12 loaves that are sitting on the table on the opposite side. Now this picture doesn't show it completely, but the walls inside were covered in gold. So the light would be very much reflected all around the inside of the holy place. And the seven lamps here, the number seven is designed to draw our mind to perfection or to God. And so this is representing the light of God's presence. And across from that, what the light is pointing toward is the 12 loaves. And 12 is the number of the tribes of Israel. These 12 loaves represent the tribes of Israel. This is what they offer to the Lord as this covenant forever. And so what you have is a picture of Israel basking in the light of God's presence. The 12 loaves have the light from the candle, from the, the candelabra, the lampstand, directed at them. And so you have a representation here of the people of Israel resting or basking in the light of God's presence. Another passage that's helpful for us to have in mind in the background here is Numbers chapter 6. Now this is the blessing that the Lord tells Aaron to give to the people. So this is Aaron as the high priest. He's to give this blessing to the people. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So they shall put my name upon the people of Israel and I will bless them. So think about what you have here. The blessing that Aaron gives, this is the Aaronic blessing, is picturing the same thing as what we just saw in the tabernacle. The light of God's presence shining on his people. The blessing of God on his people. And as you look at the words in here, the word face is the same word as the word countenance in the next verse. The translators just change it up kind of to represent Hebrew poetry, I think. But there is really no Hebrew poetry at this point. It literally uses the same word. The word means face. So this is the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his face upon you. This is the idea of God's presence shining on the people in this blessing. And so it's blessing them, keeping them. It's his grace. It's his peace upon his people. And then notice, as God sums it all up, this whole idea of the blessing of God on his people is called putting his name on his people. So when the priests do this, God says they are putting God's name on God's people. So the blessing of God's face shining on his people is called putting his name on his people. Remember that. That's important. 
So in Leviticus 24, where we are this morning, we have the same concept, what's happening with the lampstand and the bread of the presence, but we have an added element here of time, sacred time. So think about this. Leviticus 23 regulated Israel's weekly and annual calendar. When we get to Leviticus 25, it's going to show us the 50-year cycle of Israel's calendar. So sandwiched in between Leviticus 24, we should be looking for an element of time, and we actually do find one here. Think about what we just read. Where are, when, excuse me, are the lamps tended? Look at verse 3. Outside the veil of the testimony in the tent of meeting, Aaron shall arrange it from evening to morning. So evening and morning, the lamps are tended. When is the bread renewed? Verse 8. Every Sabbath day, Aaron shall arrange it before the Lord regularly. Can you think of a text in Scripture before this one in Leviticus that features evening and morning and the idea of resting on the seventh day, the Sabbath. It's creation. Every day of creation, the evening and the morning were the first day. The evening and the morning were the second day. And on the seventh day, God rested from all his works and sets the pattern for his people of the Sabbath. Remember, God put the sun, moon, and stars in their places to mark God's appointed times. So this text, Leviticus 24, has everything to do with the weekly rhythms and the Sabbath grounded in creation. And if I can just kind of step back from that for a minute and look forward, when we get to the new covenant, when Jesus has died and rises again on the first day of the week, the day of worship shifts from the Jewish era, where it's the seventh day, to now we worship on the first day of the week because the Christians gathered on the first day of the week because that's when Jesus rose. And that's the day of light. On the first day of creation, let there be light. Day one is the day of light. And now the light that was just hinted at in the old covenant that light has fully come. Jesus is the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man, John tells us. Now this covenant here in Leviticus 24 is called an eternal covenant. Of all the sacrifices, this is the one that is called eternal. That's verse, verse 8 of chapter 24. It's from the people of Israel as a covenant forever. It represents God's relationship with his covenant people. And the picture again is God's people being renewed in God's presence. Now, I've mentioned how this sits between 23 and 25, chapter 23 and chapter 25. If you look at chapter 23 and 25 together, you have seven major festivals, seven days of rest, several festivals that happen in the seventh month. You have a Sabbath year every seven years, and you have one major Sabbath year after the seventh seven-year cycle. Why the number seven? It's the Sabbath principle. The year itself, Leviticus 23, is structured around the Sabbath. The whole 
50-year cycle, Leviticus 25, is structured around the Sabbath. And here we see that even the, the weekly rhythms of worship are structured around the Sabbath. Evening and morning. The bread's renewed on the Sabbath every week. Don't miss the point. All of life for God's people is to be structured around gathering and worshiping and resting in God's presence. That's the cornerstone of the existence of God's people. That's what everything else revolves around. God's people gather in his presence to be renewed, to be recreated, so to speak. John Geary called the Sabbath the market day of the soul. In olden times, the market day was the day when you went to gather all of your supplies that you would need for the week, to restock your pantry, to refill everything that you were going to need. And so when he calls the Sabbath the market day of the soul, the idea is that when God's people gather to hear from God's word, by the power of God's spirit, they are being refreshed and renewed. They're being given what they need for the week to come. You know what it's like when the pantry or the fridge is empty. And you're trying to figure out what it is that you're going to eat. And you hear the comment, we need to get to the store, right? There's an analogy there for God's people of what your soul is like. And you need to get to the gathering of God's people to hear from God's word and to have God's spirit speak to you and to worship God. You're there in Leviticus 24. Look back at the beginning of Leviticus 23. Just the first four verses. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, These are the appointed feasts of the Lord that you shall proclaim as holy convocations. They are my appointed feasts. Six days shall work be done, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work. It is a Sabbath to the Lord in all your dwelling places. Verse 4, these are the appointed feasts of the Lord, the holy convocations, which you shall proclaim at the time appointed for them. So verse 2 and verse 4, these are the times of holy convocation. These are the times of the feasts. These are God's appointed times. And then sandwiched in between there, it's the Sabbath. That's that Oreo cookie structure that we've talked about so many times. You have one thing and you have it repeated. The thing in the middle is what your attention is being drawn to. That Sabbath rest is what defines the entire existence of God's people. Sabbath rest and renewal in God's presence. It's central to all of time for God's people. Matthew Henry said it this way. He said, the Sabbath is a sacred and divine institution but we must receive and embrace it as a privilege and a benefit, not as a task and a drudgery. To live in the presence of God is not just the end goal of holiness. It's actually the means of holiness. The gathering of God's people, God promises to use in the lives of his people to shape us to be more like him. We come near to receive blessing. Do you believe that? 
as we continue on here in Leviticus 24, the next section seems like a radical change of topic. It's appropriate punishments now. But it's not a change of topic. And I want you to listen carefully so that you understand this. Okay, before we read this section, remember what we saw in Numbers chapter 6, the idea of God's people being blessed by being in the presence of God. God's face shining on us like Leviticus 24 embodies. That was called God putting his name on his people. To have God's name is to have God's blessing. It's to live and to flourish in his presence. Like the high priest who had on his turban, holy to the Lord. God's people have his name on them by virtue of their being renewed in his presence. God's shining the light of his presence on his people. God blessing his people. That is his putting his name on them. Now with that in mind, the first section here in this appropriate punishments has to do with blaspheming the name. Let's read verses 10 through 16. Now an Israelite woman's son whose father was an Egyptian, went out among the people of Israel. And the Israelite woman's son and a man of Israel fought in the camp. And the Israelite woman's son blasphemed the name and cursed. Then they brought him to Moses. His mother's name was Shelemeth, the daughter of Dibri of the tribe of Dan. And they put him in custody till the will of the Lord should be clear to them. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, bring out of the camp the one who cursed and let all who heard him lay their hands on his head, and let all the congregation stone him. And speak to the people of Israel, saying, Whoever curses his God shall bear his sin. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him. The sojourner, as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. So God says here that blasphemy is a capital offense. The one who does this should die. Note that this is someone who is half Egyptian. But God says his law applies to the sojourner as well as to the native. But notice also the emphasis on the name. If you think back to the Ten Commandments, the third commandment is, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. So the first commandment is no other gods. The second is no idols. The third is don't take God's name in vain. And the fourth is remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. Jonathan Edwards points out that the first commandment fixes the object of our worship. The second, the means. The third, the manner. And the fourth, the time. This passage here in Leviticus 24 is why the Jewish people won't speak God's name. So when scripture says Yahweh, they will read it aloud as Lord or Adonai. And sometimes they'll refer to God simply as the name. Blasphemy against the name is a rejection of that which gives life. If flourishing and renewal for God's people comes from being in God's presence with God's presence shining on us, receiving his name, then rejecting the name is rejecting what gives life. And so death is the appropriate punishment. 
Now, as we keep going, the next section under appropriate punishments here is what we call lex talionis. Let's read verses 17 to 23. Whoever takes a human life shall surely be put to death. Whoever takes an animal's life shall make it good, life for life. If anyone injures his neighbor, as he has done, it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Whatever injury he has given a person shall be given to him. Whoever kills an animal shall make it good, and whoever kills a person shall be put to death. You shall have the same rule for the sojourner and for the native, for I am the Lord your God. So Moses spoke to the people of Israel, and they brought out of the camp the one who had cursed and stoned him with stones. Thus the people of Israel did as the Lord commanded. So the legal principle here is what we call lex talionis, which is just a fancy way of saying it's the law of eye for an eye, hand for a hand, tooth for a tooth. And the, 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 the principle here is that the punishment should fit the crime. Okay, the punishment should fit the crime. Now, if it's something like stealing something, you'll see that scripture often says that there should be restitution. It should be restored with an additional amount. But scripture's principle is always that there's an appropriate punishment. And as much as possible, that involves restitution. And you've heard me say it before, but this is why we have such a massive failure in our country, in our prison system. Think of what happens when someone steals something. They get put in jail. Did you notice that they do get put in custody here in Leviticus 24, but it's only until they can decide what should be done with the person. Putting them in custody is not a long-term solution, according to God's law. So what should happen is restitution. But what we do is we throw someone in jail, and so they don't make restitution to the person that they stole from. And not only that, then the society has the burden of paying for them being in jail. And so there's injustice from the government towards the taxpayer. There's injustice in that restitution isn't made. That's not biblical justice. That's why our prison system is such a failure. But the punishment should fit the crime. And the punishment is here for this blasphemy, loss of life. And notice, please, you have this explanation of the, 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 the story of the blasphemy. Then you have the punishment that actually is taking place. And between that is the law of lex talionis. What that's telling you is, if you want to understand the blasphemy story, you have to see that this is an appropriate punishment. This is what God says should happen. Why? Because the blasphemy is a sin against life. It's a sin against God who is the source of life, shining the blessing of life on his people. Because that's putting his name on them. And when you reject the name, you're rejecting life. And so stoning this person is, according to God, an appropriate punishment. Now, when we think about Jesus' teaching regarding the Sabbath and these topics. Jesus taught that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And I want to read one passage for you. You don't have to turn there. You can just listen because I will read it. This is Matthew 12, 1 through 8. And here's the story. 
Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence. See how this is tying Sabbath and the tabernacle and the bread of the presence together. Which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? In other words, there's working happening on the Sabbath because the priests do their work on the Sabbath. I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. He's referring to himself. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man, that's Jesus referring to himself, is Lord of the Sabbath. So David and his followers, they were on the run from Saul. And at that point, David had already been anointed as the next king, but he wasn't yet sitting on the throne. Saul was still on the throne. So he comes to the tabernacle as he and his men are on the run, and the priests there are supportive of David. And so they give him the bread of the presence, which means that he must have arrived there on the Sabbath because that's when they change the bread out, as we just read in Leviticus 24. And so they give David and his men this bread. Now, like I said, David was already anointed, but not yet sitting on the throne. When Jesus does this in Matthew chapter 12, he's already been anointed. The spirit of God has come on him. But he's not yet sitting on the throne. That'll happen after his resurrection when he ascends to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father. But we also have here Jesus' statement that he is superior to the temple or the tabernacle. So what we saw in the tabernacle in Leviticus 24, the light of God's presence shining on his people, Jesus fulfills that. He's superior to that sign, that picture. And it is now in Christ that God's presence is brought to us. It is in Christ that God shines his presence on his people. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath because he's superior to it. God has designed us so that we need rest and renewal through worshiping in his presence. That's, that's what gives us life. It, it's what gives us flourishing. Thomas Watson said this. He said, God not only appointed the seventh day, but he blessed it. It's not only a day of honor to God, but a day of blessing to us. It's not only a day wherein we give God worship, but a day wherein he gives us grace. God himself is not benefited by it. We can't add one cubit to his essential glory, but we ourselves are benefited. The Sabbath is for us. The day of worship is for us. It is God's means of rest, refreshment, flourishing for his people. Now Luke 4 tells us that it was Jesus' custom to go into the Sabbath or excuse me, into the synagogue. So on the Sabbath, Jesus typically went into the synagogue. 
Why did he do that? Did he need it? Well, as God, he didn't need it, but as man, he did. Even though he was sinless, Jesus still needed and desired to be gathered with God's people, hearing the blessing of God's word. Jesus slept. He was subject to the needs of rest. And just like physically we need rest, spiritually we need rest and refreshment. And God has designed the gathering of his people, hearing from his word, worshiping him, to be that rest and refreshment that we need. Jesus also took time away from work to rest. Matthew 14, he withdrew to a desolate place by himself. Mark 6, his disciples had been very busy and he told them, come away with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. But there's also the theological point here that Jesus' death has provided us rest from our works. We've seen it several times recently as we've jumped ahead to Hebrews chapter 4. This is verses 9 through 11. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest. So let me just ask us some questions. The first question has to be this one. Do you have the name? Do you belong to God? Have you received the blessing that comes from coming into God's presence? And the only way to come into God's presence is by the blood of Christ. Have you done that? Have you placed faith in Jesus? Jesus provides us rest from our works when we trust him for salvation. We can't be good enough on our own. We can never be righteous enough to please God. The only way we can rest from our works, that we can stop trying to earn our way into God's presence, is to look to Christ, to trust in his works and to rest from ours. But then for those of us who are believers, worship of God is what God has designed to restore us, to recalibrate us to our God-designed mode of being. Do you believe that your creator has designed you the way he says he did? Do you believe that? I'm guessing that probably everyone here had seven nights of rest this week. Seven nights of sleep. Now, it might be more sleep or less sleep. Kids may be up. Maybe you're up late doing work. And occasionally, we might even pull an all-nighter. But generally speaking, we can't live in defiance of the idea that we need rest. At some point, we will break down and keel over and fall asleep. But spiritually, do we believe that? Or do we try to continue on and on and on without rest? Do we take the time out to pause for what God says will restore us and renew us? Do we prioritize the gathering together with God's people? 
to hear from God's word by the power of his spirit so that he can shine the light of his presence on our lives. Do we prioritize that? Do we see that as the cornerstone of time for our entire lives? Worship renews us. The Spirit of God working through the Word gives us what we truly need. In John 6, 63, Jesus said, The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. His words are life. I don't know how much you are tuned in to the news, but several pastors in Canada have been thrown in jail here in the last couple of weeks because they led their churches to gather for worship. Because they believed what God said. Because they know that God's people need to gather. And so they're paying a price for it. I don't know if that's going to come to our country anytime soon. But I do know this, the time to decide whether or not the gathering of God's people is truly a priority for you is not when the persecution finally comes. The time to decide that it's a priority for you is now. God's word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Gathering as his people to rest and to worship in his presence is how he says he renews us. God's people flourish when they regularly gather to rest and worship in his presence. Thomas Watson said it this way. He said, excuse me, this is George Swinnick, and then I'm going to give you what Thomas Watson said. George Swinnick says, joy suits no person so much as a saint, and it becomes no season as well as a Sabbath. What's he saying? The most joyful people on earth should be Christians. We have the most reason for joy. And the most joyful time of the week for a Christian should be gathering together with God's people to receive God's grace, his blessing, his peace, his word, his spirit. And Thomas Watson, I'll finish with this. He says, the business of weekdays makes us forgetful of God and our souls. The Sabbath brings him back to our remembrance. When the falling dust of the world has clogged the wheels of our affections that they can scarce move towards God, the Sabbath comes and oils the wheels of our affections and they move swiftly on. The heart which all the week was frozen on the Sabbath melts with the word. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that as we consider the words that you've given us this morning, that we would see how you've designed us as your people to be regularly coming into your presence and receiving the blessing of your face shining on us, of your son and the words of life that he has given to us, of your spirit and the regenerating work that he's done in our lives. Help us to have the same priorities that you do, that we would come to see time as you see it, that you've built into our lives these rhythms for a reason, and that if we're feeling spiritually anemic or, or down or, or dragging, that maybe the reason is we haven't prioritized the means that you've given us 
for coming into your presence and receiving that blessing. I pray that we would have great joy because of the blessing that you have given to us. I pray that we would worship you, not because it adds anything to you, but because this is how you choose to bless us. There's no one who's more worthy of worship. And when we come into your presence and we consider who you are and what you have done, that recalibrates us. It brings us back into alignment with you. It, it oils the wheels of our affections so that our loves are ordered rightly, so that we're loving the things that you love, so that we go out into the week thinking your thoughts after you. We pray for that blessing. We recognize that you've given us this promise, and so we want to trust you for what you have said. And we pray this this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.